So welcome back, everybody, to another episode of What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their family, and those we serve. So here today, we have a very special guest. We have a friend of mine for a long time back now, uh, Mr. Chance Farrar, who is the Deputy Patrol Agent in Charge of the Special Operations Detachment in the Yuma sector. Now, what that means to us is... He's in charge of the Sector BORTAC team, the Sector BORSTAR team, the Sector Mobile Response team, all of the special operations aspects that take place in the Yuma sector, a very busy sector in its own right. But more than that, Mr. Chance Farrar epitomizes the men and women that make up the United States Border Patrol. We have some very special individuals here that, uh, that do some amazing things. Before I get to what he's done, let me welcome him. Chance, thanks for being here. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me. How was the drive? Long, long drive. I'm too old for the drive is what I realized. I think we kind of mentioned earlier, um, it used to be an easy drive. No longer. No longer. <laughs> it's kind of the, the way things are for all of the aspects of our career now. That, that might be true, unfortunately. Yeah. So you came into the United States Border Patrol in 2001 in class 468. Correct. Now, I, I ask this of every guest here. Do you remember your class chant? I do. What is it? I'm not going to say it. Come on. Okay, so there's two class chants. Do you want to know the real one or the one behind the scenes? Well, because I got to hear both now. <laughs> no, it was, it was uh, on the border, keep it straight. No, keep, oh my goodness. <laughs> on the border, keep it straight. No, you're, I don't know my chant anymore. This is unbelievable. Well, just okay, so I only remember the other one. It was drink some wine, get a date on the border, 468. That was the behind the scenes one. The other one was... Hold the hold the line, keep it straight on the border four six eight. There, there we go. go. Took a while. I got there. <laughs> well, it's been more than twenty. It, it's been a bit. All right, give me a break. <laughs> Frontal lobe damage. We, I've taken some, a couple Fair times enough. concussed. And we're going to talk about that okay. in a second too. But uh, so you were assigned to the Campo Station in San Diego sector originally. Correct. Yes, sir. And I think that's the, the around the time I met you. Uh, you went through the React. Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Right. Wow. Yeah. Been a hot minute. <laughs> So you were in San Diego for a while, and then you transferred to the Welton Station in 2007. Now, you're from Yuma. I am. So that's uh, getting close to home for you. Which that is, and I'm home and happy in Yuma. And uh, speaking of which, you're you're married, and mm -hmm. you have five lovely kids. True. Three girls, two boys, so you're effectively outnumbered. I am, and it's, uh, it's a lot more than I anticipated. Didn't know, you know, I, of course I love what I have, but it, but it's a lot. And uh, my wife and, and I had no clue um, what we were doing, and uh, we still don't. So there you go. <laughs> well, we say that. Uh, I think every one of us say that. As as <laughs> but you have an amazing family, obviously. And, uh, and you know, I've, I've, kept, I've kept track of you over the years and, and, and really admire what you're doing. But I want to tell everybody else a little bit about Chance and, mm -hmm. what, and what he does. So start off with uh, education. So he went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical mm -hmm. University. He got his bachelor's degree there. More than that. So starting in high school, he, he was a wrestler. So for four years, he wrestled in Yuma High School and then two years at Arizona State and then three years with Embry-Riddle. And that sets up what he ended up doing on the side in addition to being a Border Patrol agent. So 
He was the assistant wrestling coach at Embry-Riddle for a while. He was the head wrestling coach for 4th Avenue, 4th Avenue Junior High School. Uh, then he was a head wrestling coach in uh, Winter Haven, California, and then head MMA and wrestling coach uh, for the Arizona Athletic Club and the Yuma United Mixed Martial Arts, which spells Yuma. Right, and those are some gyms I uh, I started with some friends, and some of which you know actually. So, yeah, it's a it's a long it's a long journey, but it all did start with wrestling, and wrestling. Uh, is still a huge part of my life. I actually coach at Gila Ridge High School. Uh, we just finished our season. Um, not as good as we had hoped, but we were sectional champions, which uh, is an achievement. It's an achievement. Um, what was it about wrestling that, that attracted you, that drew you? I, that is a great question. So but th- this is what I love about wrestling. Um, well, here's what I love is the job application. I really believe as an adult, especially if you're in law enforcement, that you should never um, – be more happy that you wrestled because you have skills that you didn't know would apply to your job more than any other sport. Um, we kind of talk about you know handcuffing techniques and we touch on things like that. But um, and I've arrested quite a few people, just not to brag. But um, I always would do what I learned in wrestling, which is keep my weight forward, uh, hand control, weight you know on my toes and very difficult for somebody to get up when, and when they're in that situation because you understand pressure as a wrestler. Um, and just to continue on the wrestling spiel, it's the character building piece of it. And that's why I have my kids wrestle. You learn to execute skills without thinking. And that's kind of a lot of what we have to do on the job when, it, when in a tactical situation, there's no time to, to think there's really time to do. And you're a product of your training. So if you train yourself correctly, you're going to, you're going to execute um, in that moment. And, hopefully have successful outcomes. And a tremendous amount of discipline it takes to actually do wrestling and do it well. Yeah, and that's the character-building piece of it. If you want to be a good wrestler, you you learn the culture, right? The culture is you learn to outwork your opponent. You learn to to um, have that will to train and prepare for a match that you don't even know is going to happen. But if you don't develop that or if that isn't part of your culture, you're not going to be good at wrestling. But So it's just pretty much every wrestling program you know, we call them extras. If you're, if you're only training hard in practice, you're not going to achieve anything in wrestling. Wrestling is what you do outside of practice, what you do in your, you know, the choices you make in your personal life with what you put in your body, your nutrition, your, your strength programs, the things that you do extra because there's another wrestler out there that's training to beat you. But that mindset, like, carries over to, into life. And so I, um, I'm a big advocate. That sounds like a metaphor for the law enforcement profession. That's how I feel. You're training because there's somebody training to beat you. Thank you. Thank you so much, because that's exactly um, better put than I could have said it. But that's how I feel. A lot of life skills to be learned, especially as a kid. Exactly. So I make my kids wrestle. And a lot of people kind of like, how could you make your kids wrestle? It's it's for the reasons we just discussed. It's for the reason that um, I've never met an adult who said, I wish I didn't learn wrestling. It doesn't happen. Everybody wishes they wrestled. In fact, I think most people who are adults who didn't wrestle have to look themselves in the mirror and go, what excuse did I use not to wrestle? Because you come up with one. And I have friends, you know, they're like, oh, I didn't like the uniforms. Like, okay, you, you didn't want to get beat up in front of people. And I don't blame you. No, who does? But it takes a certain um, amount of pride and, and these other kind of foresight to talk, you know, like things we're talking about. You're, look ahead. You're, you're going to be a stronger person. And in order to do that, you have to 
go through this process. So growing up in Oklahoma, I, I wrestled a little bit, not nothing like what you did, but I can remember. You this, wrestled. That's all I need to hear. Good well, man. The, the singlets is what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody wants to wear it. And I, and I do remember plenty of times having to take that, uh, that uh, ankle bracelet off. That was the uh, either red or green. Yes, sir. And if you lose, it was a lot more difficult to do than whenever you stand there and hanging onto it and the referee's the other guy's hand and you're there in front of God and everybody uh, taking the loss. It's humbling. Very humbling. And that humbling thing is what another piece of this develops a good person. Humble people are good people. doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't the arrogant people as well, but for the most part, wrestlers get humbled all the time. And so you learn to be a good person. You learn that you have limitations and, and train your way through those, that adversity. And, and you already mentioned it, training for the, the adversary that you don't know that you're going to have soon. So it's great. So I mentioned that because uh, you did a lot more winning than you did losing. I, I beg to differ, but I appreciate you <laughs> saying that. So two-time collegiate All-American team, 97-98. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Two-time collegiate wrestling national finalist, 97-98. NAIA co- collegiate wrestling national champion, 1997. Ranked number 11 in all collegiate divisions in 1998. Ranked 7th in the U.S. national team ladder in 2000. That sounds like a lot of winning. Well, I mean, there's a lot of losing there, too, but... It was it was uh, my life at the time, and I lived it, and I I really um, focused on developing those skills, and and I think that that really was the only thing that got me anywhere in life, really, because I I didn't have anything else to focus on. I I do have a love hate relationship with wrestling because it's a very tough sport, and that grind is not always pleasant, but I think that the product is is worth it. Well, and, and the, we talked about it before, the sacrifice. Uh, so you, you said that it dominated your life during that time. Yes. That's what it takes to be a champion. Exactly. I, I never, I didn't have a beer until I was 25 years old. I was focused on being the champion of the world. Even this is before MMA was a thing. I always thought in terms of this is something that I want to be good at. And, and uh, you know, fighting kind of was taking off at, at around that time, but it was in, in its infancy. So um, there was no weight class for me at that time, and so, but I was still literally training. You know, I grew up boxing as well. My my father was a, an interesting character, but uh, and I had brothers. But but the point is, I just always had that in me for whatever reason. I really believe I credit to wrestling because of that mindset, and and it just kind of again spilled over into other avenues. And those other avenues, of course, being MMA. So let's get into the other half of that. Okay. So. And I think we have a picture. So most notably, uh, you came on the scene for most of us whenever you fought Uriah Faber in uh, WEC, which is uh, a subsidiary, so to speak, of UFC, yeah. for the featherweight champion mm-hmm. uh, championship. And that was, was that your first professional MMA fight? No. So at the time, the WC that was the pinnacle of, of uh, the weight class, 145, the featherweight. UFC had the 155, but they were both uh, Zufa-owned organizations. And so if you wanted to be the champ of the world, at the time you fought at the WC in my weight. So, but to answer your other question, no, it wasn't. My first fight was about, I think, two, two years prior in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, which is another one of my underground titles is I was the first professional fighter to come out of Yuma, Arizona. It was the first professional fighting event in Yuma, Arizona. Again, 2005, it was called Total Combat. And, um, And why I did that is really probably the question that it's difficult to answer because I started training in jiu jitsu and figuring out that 
I was a good grappler, but I wasn't a comprehensive grappler. Didn't, you know, started training with Ryan Orpalo. Actually, a funny story is at the Border Patrol Academy, Ryan Orpalo, who was an instructor, he choked me out. Um, and I had never been choked out. I had never really done um, jujitsu. And so, but that experience uh, spilled over. So as soon as I got stationed back in Campo, I, I looked up Orpalo and he, he uh, sent me over to Fabio Santos jujitsu. And then I proceeded to get choked out over there many times. <laughs> and developed a love, you know, it's, it gets still grappling, but it's just a, a different form of grappling. And, and of course has, um, a lot of variables that, that are required to be able to, to compete in MMA. And it just kind of makes sense because as a wrestler, you're trying, you want to get the person on their back and pin them. Right. And that's exactly where the jujitsu person wants to be. Exactly. And so once you get them there and they're home and you're done. And so you had to make that transition. Right. But I will say though, I'm still a big advocate of wrestling over jujitsu as a, as a youth sport. Um, and we can get into all that, but just to continue. So I, I started doing jitsu, then I was started training with other people that were fighting. And then this event came up in Yuma and then, you know, I was beating up all of my buddies who were professional fighters. And so I said, why not I take a fight? I did. And it was, um, it was a different experience and I, I learned to like it because I like to compete. I think that competitive piece is, is important. Obviously, so yeah. were there were there nerves involved? It's different from a wrestling match where you're getting your first MMA fight. Yeah. So it was and wasn't. So because you wrestle, I wrestled my whole life. So many matches. There there was, there was a point where I never got nervous anymore for wrestling matches. But this this revived it, because when I was walking out to the cage, I remember that feeling, and I tell all of my fighters this because the first your first fight, you'll have this feeling. What am I doing? <laughs> And why am I doing this? And I had that feeling. And once I got in there, it all went away. Uh, another crazy story to add to this, not that we're, you want to hear, but the very next day I drove to Tijuana, Mexico and I had my second pro fight. So I had two pro fights um, one day after the other. And that was kind of my introduction into the, the MMA world. And um, I don't regret it. It was fun. So talking about, so Ryan, of course, is another Border Patrol agent in San Diego. Yes. He happens to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu. World champion. Life, He's a world champion. Lifelong practitioner. Yes, and, love uh, the guy. Very humble, very amazing mm -hmm. individual in his own right. And, and uh, still doing well out there, I think. And, but uh, that was kind of, uh, you know, one of your intros into it, as you yes. said. But in addition to that, you trained with, uh, and some of these names to the uh, followers of MMA will ring true, mm -hmm. Dean Lister, uh, Jocko Willink, uh, Melkor Menor. Yeah. Mel Menor, right? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, there's, there's a whole He's a Muay Thai world champion, Dean Lister, multiple times submission world champion. And then Jocko, everybody knows Jocko. But Jocko was not the Jocko he is now at that time. He was just this, you know, stoic, real life kind of comic book character, superhero that stood in the corner and yelled at us. And everybody um, listened. Everybody <laughs> listened. And it, it wasn't because he could whoop us. It was just he was very demanding and uh, you didn't want to let Jocko down. And I was very fortunate to be around um, people like him and, and, of course, Dean Lister, um, super technical grappler, and I learned so many little tricks from him. So I just happened to be in the mecca of MMA in San Diego at the time by happenstance, by, you know, by, I think, a natural tendency to seek out um, good people, competitive people, and that's kind of what happened. We a group of guys. There was other people involved. Greg McIntyre, who was a WC, Shannon Googerty, uh, was a UFC fighter. All these guys, and like you, you already mentioned, Ryan Rapallo, we all kind of just got together and would train, mm -hmm. and and it was just one of those great things. And then everybody splintered off and did their own thing as life develops. But 
I was very, very fortunate to be amongst them. And not only that, you did some uh, supplemental training with mm-hmm. the likes of Dan Henderson, Shogun mm-hmm. Hua, mm-hmm. Ninja Hua. When you get around people like that and you're getting ready to lock up with them, are you not scared? Yeah. I, I think that got removed from me. I don't know why. I, I never... I'd be awestruck. I got, I, that got removed. I lost a piece of myself because I stopped getting nervous. I stopped... Um, I don't Maybe it was a, <laughs> a defense mechanism. I'm not sure, but I really... Um, I get more nervous talking to you right now on this podcast. And Cameron as, does that, yeah. Yeah, but as far as uh, fighting is concerned, I, I really, besides that first walkout, I stopped. I never got nervous. I never got nervous in training. I, I enjoyed um, I enjoyed combat sports. And so, it, it, so 12 professional fights you've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were the Desert Rage FCF champion. Mm-hmm. You were contracted with the World Extreme Cage Fighting. We talked about that. That's mm-hmm. uh, you know under the UFC for the, because the featherweight at the time was that existed there and not yeah, in the UFC. Exactly. Uh, 2007 World Featherweight Championship title fight uh, against your FA, which unfortunately you know if you're going to lose to somebody, somebody right. like that, it's it's. Right. Yeah, so that then that's a kind of a funny story how that fell together. Is just um, I had only had five pro fights. Um, I was training with Dominic Cruz. Um, he was one of my training partners at the time and Dominic Cruz had just lost to Uriah Faber and I had kind of been watching and everybody knew that, that I was kind of the, the king of the lightweights, if you will. And one of the managers kind of said, Hey, uh, I can get you this fight if you want to fight. And at, if you know me, I, I don't, uh, I don't really turn down fights. I don't want, I don't do well in that. So I of course accepted it and that's, and that's where, uh, it, my life went. But as far as like work, um, this was a different time, right? So I was a full-time board agent and I was committed to a 24-7 call-out team with React. And that was my, my priority. Fighting was a hobby. It was after work when we were training. So, but I could do that back then. I could still be a good board agent and a fighter, but the sport has changed and evolved and I would never be an advocate of, of having any of my pros um, do anything other than focus on fighting. And so I kind of, I don't say this as an excuse, but I don't even think I took leave for the fight. I think I just left to Vegas on my scheduled days off and went and fought Uriah Faber. It was that, that kind of a lifestyle. Um, well, was, so let's, let's talk about that experience. So yeah. when you went there just on your days off, you're driving up there. Mm-hmm. At some point it has to hit you, whether you're walking out to the cage or not. Yeah. I'm about to fight for the world championship title against one of the most famous people at the time in MMA. Right. How did that feel? Well, I just, I like uh, I think I told you, I knew I was going to win up until I lost. I just, that's just how my mind works. I don't see myself losing hardly ever. And I had a ton of success in training. I had his, his sparring partners come to San Diego and I cleaned them out and they all told me how I was going to destroy your right favor. So I <laughs> had no reason to believe I'd lose. Um, but, but um, you know, failing at the margins of your training is what I believe did happen in that fight. I, I had never been, um, I'd never been slammed and reversed like he did to me. And I think that that really um, affected me. It, it's, it was something I was uncomfortable having happen. It never happened to me in training, which goes to show me that I didn't, you know, have it put myself in enough situations to where that, that could have happened. And I ensure that my fighters are kind of exposed to every danger zone situation possible to make sure that that little, um, you know, mental lapse doesn't happen to to them so i think there is training value in it but really that is the best way i can describe it is as soon as the fight shifted away from me 
I mentally shut down, and I have to live with it. And I look back on it, going, "What happened to you?" Well, but at least you stepped in the cage. Well, I mean, that's that's the easy part, really, for me. But <laughs> well, so was there a moment whenever you thought, "I'm in trouble," or he's, he's got me, or is it just right there when it actually happened? I think I like it, like I was kind of describing. I don't know if you if you remember the nuance of the fight, but I he reversed me and he picked me up, and then he kind of dropped me. And uh, it didn't hurt me at the time. I think it more scared me. It just kind of, I just was sent into the panic mode mm-hmm. about what just, well, how did that just happen? This guy's going to, you know, he's going to beat me up. And then it wasn't a short time later, he was choking me. And I kind of reverted to like, oh, I'm beat. And just, that's it. I lost. I was watching. I remember we all yeah. heard that you were getting ready to, to have the fight. And we all, you know, I think it's pay-per-view. Right. right? And, uh, was it WC? WC. And so... I remember watching, and for that, you know, the first while you were keeping up with him, and, and I think you even slammed him at one point. True. And uh, and then and then all of a sudden, just uh, turned around and and, and it happened. Uh, but we we were all going crazy. You know, it was it was just one of those things where one of our own was out well, there. Well, I love the support, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you get a chance to talk to him after? Oh yeah, we're good buddies now. We we laugh about it, and I'm, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but he he he's all, he's very respectful towards me, and he always kind of. I don't want to. I don't know the best way to put it, but he always. He's just. He's a very humble champion. He's a good, good person, and he always gives me a ton of respect. Over like overly respectful to where, where I kind of feel weird about it. He's super cool. That's a pretty common trait, though, with, with fighters. It is. There's it the, is. The, the, the humbleness, humility. You're, you're right. You're right. And especially, I think, when you have a little battle with somebody, and um, you when you fight somebody, that that there's a there's a respect there for sure. Just what an amazing experience! How many did you ever think for a second you'd get a chance to do something like that? That's a once in a lifetime thing. I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because without sounding kind of arrogant, but I just I believed that I was the best. I really did, and um, to find out that I wasn't was kind of the hard part. <laughs> but I think it goes back to kind of something you were talking about earlier. It's yeah. here's a guy that full time fighter. That's all he did was just train, train, train. Right. You're a full-time board control agent. Oh, by the way, in fighting. Right, and and that's what I, in hindsight, that's how I think about it. At the time, I didn't, there was no limitations. I would never think of it that as an excuse or anything like that. It just, it was a different time. But now, um, because I know better, that full-time uh, makes a difference. Sure. <laughs> well, and then, so then, kind of going on with that, yeah. life continues and right. things change and you evolve and, and you got more into the coaching aspect. True. And that became a big part of your life. You yeah. actually started training others. Right. I love to coach, and, and it, it's a it's a selfless act. It becomes a passion uh, akin to being an athlete. You just kind of saturate yourself on how do I get this person better? How do I develop this athlete? You know, what what are we lacking? How do we, you know, fill these gaps? And and it's um, – it, but it's that same mindset of just improvement, of constantly trying to get better. Um, and I think that good coaches – are, are, a, are a rarity. I'm not saying I'm one, but I, I want to be, and I definitely believe that someday I will be a great coach. Well, I think you qualify as one. We have a picture of uh, Mr. Kelvin Gastelum, who is a UFC professional fighter and, and champion. I know that guy. <laughs> this is one of your uh, your athletes that you train. Yeah, so Kelvin came in the gym, I think he was 17 years old, and we had a we had another UFC fighter, Edgar Garcia, at Yuma, who was, who was an amazing athlete. Um, he was another one of one of uh, guys that we developed at Yuma, and uh, but I'm just talking about Kelvin. Kelvin came in at 17, wasn't afraid to to throw down, took his uh, beatings well, and stuck around. He was another wrestler from Yuma. Wrestling, there's a big wrestling culture in Yuma, so 
kind of the tough wrestlers gravitated towards the MMA. They, that was kind of something that was that we were trying to paint that picture for wrestlers. This is something that you can, you know, go to the next level in. And he was an example of it. And he stuck around. He was he was uh, Edgar Garcia's number one training partner after Edgar. Uh, nobody could really compete with Edgar anymore. Then we had Kelvin, and Kelvin um, did the did the <laughs> the tough job of being a sparring partner, somebody who hits as hard as Edgar. And then um, as things materialized, and we focused on his technical aspects, all of his his toughness and his uh, prowess came to fruition. And and the guy is he is world class, and I'm very proud of him. I mean, he's gonna he's got some big stuff coming on right now I mean there's been highs and lows in his career and I think anyone that follows him know you know that there's struggles and and unfortunately for these guys on nowadays with social media with just you know the internet really um, anything they do wrong is kind of showcased and you know their pitfalls with making weight or uh, or whatever in their personal life that that isn't going well is kind of put on display and so they have to they kind of have to do their own PR campaign. Meanwhile, tr- focus on being a good fighter, and it's it's interesting. But I do I do enjoy watching it. I do enjoy being a part of his journey. And uh, there's others. There's more to come. Just for the record. Well, so having been there and done that, did that kind of help you be a good coach? Did you kind of have that absolutely. Well, I think I think because of um, I'm not I'm not afraid to talk about the shortcomings of my own career, the shortcomings of of my bad choices. And I use those as examples for for my fighters to to not do. And if they're smart enough to listen, then hopefully they don't replicate those bad decisions and and be better than me. And I think that they are. So I'm going to ask you kind of a loaded question because knowing you, I think I know what the answer is going to be. Mm-hmm. You get more nervous when you're the one in the ring or when one of your fighters steps in the ring. Yeah, my fighters. Yeah. Hundred percent. I get nervous. I, I think that's why you know my gray hair. In addition to my children, but that it's tough. It is tough to watch somebody you care about go out there and, and fight. Um, I try and be emotionless. I try and be stoic for for them. I I, sh- I try and show confidence. But you know, at that level, you're aware that anything can happen, and you're you're also aware of of this is a person's livelihood at that level. This is like what they do for money. And for their their families, um, you know, <laughs> financial picture. So it's it's so critical that everything fall you know comes together for, for that person. So that's a little bit different than, than your experience because uh, you still were a full time board choice and you had a guaranteed yeah. income career. Exactly. And so I didn't fight for money. I money that's never been. Um, I didn't fight for glory. I, I fought really for pride. I just was a very prideful guy, and I I maybe had a chip on my shoulder. I'm not really sure. But I I did. I was just one of those driven guys who I just wanted to prove that I'm better than than you at this sport. And I did view it as a sport because, of course, I didn't ever want to hurt anybody. I, I think I was always um, a good sport. Um, well, there's some guys that I mean, they don't have. Well, they have a, a job to the extent that they can, but they'll live in their cars. They'll they'll live in the gym. They'll right. they'll work at the gym in lieu of paying membership fees. Yes. Uh, whatever it is to try and make that dream happen. We've had all those guys. You know, I owned a gym for seven years, and I've I've seen them all. And I, I kind of, I also know from from seeing enough of these athletes that there's, there's some that, you know, just um, they're not doing the right things to get on the level. And then there's some guys like Kelvin who are doing two days from the time he's 17 to 20 to to make himself into something. So there's there's sacrifice, no doubt, but then there's also um, there's 
good training, right? Some guys are just doing the wrong things. They're not really focused on on developing their skill sets kind of like a pro athlete should, right? I mean, we, we try and get stronger, faster, and more technical. And if you're missing a piece of that or you're not always trying to improve in one of those all the time, then, then you're going to get passed up by somebody who is. So, and that's kind of, you know, the mindset that I push on everybody is like, Every single day, there's not one of these things that you cannot get better at, stronger, faster, or more technical. And we're talking about fighting skills, of course. So, well, so and while you were doing this on the MMA and the wrestling side, mm-hmm. you were also doing this with your career in the United States Border Patrol because on the side of things where you're part of our family, you were also going above and beyond. So you went through, you mentioned the REACT team in San Diego, which is the Regional Emergency and Crisis Team. That's their SRT at the time now yes. is, is BORTAC. Correct. So you, you went through that selection course. Uh, you stayed with it. You're, uh, you're a member of the Special Operations Detachment now at UMA Sector. You're the number two person in charge of that team, the, the deputy patrol agent in charge, now a member of BORTAC. That's a tough thing in its own right. Did that mentality that you applied toward MMA and wrestling help you to achieve those goals? I, I believe that, um, Yes, and I also believe that I got a lot of that mentality from, you know, my brothers and sisters in the patrol, that my, the leadership that I've been around. I believe that a lot of it, or, or helping really frame frame exactly how I felt, um, was learned in the Border Patrol. Um, I think I, I kind of was groomed a certain way with a certain mentality, but I think in order to really organize my thoughts and what I want to do or what's most important. I think that I learned that, that type of thinking in the Border Patrol, BORTAC, and in the community that, that we're a part of. I think that that really helped me focus. And, and I also think that that selfless aspect of coaching and making that transition, I think that that's, that's a, a leadership principle that you learn from somebody else. And I, and I know I didn't learn it through wrestling. I learned that by watching the leaders that I have in the Border Patrol. So I'm, I'm very very proud of, of what you mentioned in, in that career. That, that's a great way of saying it, and that's, uh, that, that speaks in volumes, I think, for the experience that a person gets in an organization and a family like this. In the board, which I know I feel the, the exact same way. And I actually, we were talking about this earlier, I remember seeing you for the first time, me and another chief in El Centro Sector, his name's Greg Bovino, we were standing up the SRT team in El Centro Sector. So we went over to the REACT selection course, and we had some of our guys going through. Hank Alicio and Gabe got it. You got it. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember seeing a younger chance for our <laughs> selection course. It was, it was all a fog and a haze. Yeah, I remember you. nothing. Because <laughs> you know, these, these guys are getting four hours of sleep a night at yeah. best, and they're just getting uh, run through the ringer to, to make it on this team. But uh, I saw that in you then. You, you, there was no quit in you, and you had a, you had your nose to the grindstone, and you were just putting one foot in front of the other, and you were not going to quit, and you were not going to give up. And you can see that in somebody whenever they're put in those situations. It's one of the things I liked about these teams, you know, Bortac and Borstar, because you see that type of individual, and that's what it takes to, to make it through one of those selection courses. I 100% agree with you, and I think I still have PTSD, but <laughs> but I agree that that process is, is necessary to – to develop the product we're talking about. What made you decide to, to go the special operations route in the Border Patrol? I, I think it's a mindset of taking on a new challenge, of, of, of finding those elite elite people with that same mindset and trying to be a part of them. And it's, it's kind of going back to that same MMA thing where just finding people who are trying to put themselves, you know, separate themselves, make themselves better than, than others. And again, in, in that given realm, not better people, but just better at the skill set. 
And so you gravitate towards that and you seek those type of people out because you crave knowledge and crave skills. And I think that that's just the type of, of people um, that, that gravitate towards special operations. And so you, you come from Yuma, so I, I got to assume you grew up around the Border Patrol. You kind of knew what it was. I, I knew what it was, but I never wanted to be a Border Patrol agent. How did it happen? That's, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story. It's almost embarrassing, but I was coaching wrestling, San School High School, and then a friend of mine said, hey, you want to take the Border Patrol test? And and I said, no. And he said, yes, you're taking it. Okay, and then we took it, and then uh, was fast forward, the uh, season was over. I didn't have anything going on. The Border Patrol called me and said, would you like to go to Campo or Ajo? And Gee, I said, wow, let me uh, think about this. But, it, yeah, so then... The rest is history, and, and of course, uh, you know how blessed I am to to not even know what I was getting into, and and to fast forward my life and and, and recognize how critical you know that choice was for me to go. Yeah, I'll take the test. Yes, this is, and we'll see what happens. And but it's everything I have. And when you got in, was there a moment whenever you said, "Okay, this is going to be a career for me. This is going to be my life." Right. Yes, that happened to me at the at the Border Patrol Academy. At the academy. At the academy. Right. You know what? That actually brings up a really good point because I don't think we do enough of that at the Border Patrol Academy. I don't remember exactly um, other than running with Bob Breyer. You know, he was the PT instructor. But I don't think we do enough. Um, it's not selling, but instilling that. I mean, we you know, we have ways of instilling pride and stuff, but not really talking about, you know, the border mission and how, what a critical role like you're going to play in it and how important it is that you, you know, develop yourself into these things. I, I don't feel like we, we do enough of that. Um, but, but maybe I'm wrong. I've, I've been removed, so I don't know how much of that goes on. That's a fair point. I'd say I think we can always do better at it because we, everything that we can do to prepare somebody to walk out these gates and, and, and do the job, it's, it's, we owe it to them. And so it, we can always do better. I think, uh, having folks like you here and having them get a chance to meet you. You're going to do a fireside chat with the trainees tonight. All right. And they're going to get a chance to, uh, to, to meet you and ask questions. And, and some of those same exact questions I'm sure are going to come up. But back to your point. So we're in the midst of another surge, uh, migrant surge at the border. We're seeing massive numbers like we have over the, the past several years. 34,000 March RGV. 34,000. That's one sector alone. So how do we prepare for what that's like, for what uh, what the agents are going to be going like when they're out there, you you talked about it earlier. It's mm. it can be demoralizing right. you know, whenever you're just getting overrun. It is nonstop. if you care about the border mission, it's it's a uh, it's demoralizing. And it doesn't matter what type of traffic we're seeing. Overrun is overrun. Exactly. If you're uh, if you're catching more than the system is capable of processing then you're going to get backed up and you're working long hours you're working six seven days a week you're you're tired all the time and you just don't see any end in sight that's where that mental toughness and that discipline comes into play to stay the course and stay on mission i think that's what you're talking about it is and i just really think of that love of or the 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 importance of the mission you know what we kind of were talking about this where you know there's people in our organization that truly don't even really or aren't bothered by this because I don't believe they care about the border mission. And I always wonder like how, how you do this job and not do that. Now, hopefully that's a very small minority, but, but I, I actually have had these conversations. And so how do you motivate somebody who isn't really motivated by anything that we're talking about that they don't, uh, you know, clearly good border trade agents want to catch a person that's 
that doesn't want to be caught, right? The the ones that truly have some something, they're going to come here for bad intentions, you know. But then we have this surge, and you know we have this other dynamic that we're not, you know, we're not comfortable with. But then we also have these the dichotomy of the of the ones that we're trying to catch, but our time is 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 split and how do you stay on task and still maintain that motivation as super difficult? I know I'm just rambling, but, um, no, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And I try and talk to as many agents as I can for the record. And I have these conversations and I tell them, um, you know, stay, stay the course, brother. This is, or sister, this is, um, this is important. What we're doing right now, we're going to get through this, but more importantly to let them know that, you know, we still care about each other. And I think that that mutual love is what's going to carry us through. We got to have compassion. I got to agree more. I think yeah. that's, that's a great way of saying it. And I think, uh, I do think it's a smaller, uh, aspect of our population because I think typically the type of person it is, I'm sorry to say that I shouldn't have said that. Cause no, no, it, it's, it's good. I, yeah. I, I think it's a fair point. You have to point out in all transparency, everybody, every group of people has folks that, that lack motivation. Yeah. And, but by and large, I think the people that are, uh, that are called to this type of profession, called to being a public servant, they want to serve that greater good. They yeah. want to do something bigger than themselves. And that's predominantly who we have in, in all along. It, it is. I, but maybe that should be the, one of the polygraph questions now. Do you believe in the border security mission? And then that's part of the selection. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Human resources are probably listening. We'll see if they, uh, if they buy into it. Put that in the comment box. <laughs> <laughs> so they... They go through this every couple of years. This is not in it. If you've been in the Border Patrol long enough, you see it's like a roller coaster ride. You go through surges. You go through ups and downs. There's times when things are favorable for us, and there's times whenever they're not. But what holds us together, that glue that makes us unique and special, in my mind, is exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about. It's it's we got each other's back. You yeah. know, we're, 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 a, we're a fraternity, a brotherhood, a sisterhood. Right. And, uh, and as long as you know that you have that person to your side that's always there with you and for you, it makes it easier to navigate through some of these trying times. Love it. There's another piece of that, and that's our family. Yes. Now, I know that you are a big family man, so I much am. so that, that your your career and your life has, has turned to that more and more the further down the line that you get. Maturity, I think, really, because so trying to be an athlete is a very uh, selfish decision. It's a lonely journey, but it's just very self-absorbing. And, uh, you know, athletes kind of get the bad rap for, you know, the arrogance, but it's true because in order to be great at something, you truly have to be self-absorbed and this, you know, false sense of confidence and all these other things. But as you get older and you recognize like what's most important, that starts dissolving. You start recognizing the, like I am definitely not the most important piece of this puzzle. And you know, what, what you give to other people, what you pass on, those are, you know, those are the key things and your family being probably the most, you know, the most tangible, um, you know, the most, the most tangible thing that you could ever, you know, give to the country is, you know, a good family putting good people, you know, back into our country. And well, I think it, it, it for me, they're the reminders of why I do what I do. Those are the ones that's that a good way to put in it in my mind that I'm protecting, you know, that I'm, that I'm the way of life, our values, that's, right. that's what matters. And they also keep me grounded. They keep me, uh, uh stable because, you know, when I walk out there and I do the job each and every day, they're the ones that are staying behind. They're the ones that are enabling and allowing me to go out and do whatever it is I'm going to do. You right. can't put a price on the importance of that foundation. 
You're right. And I, and I always wonder if, if we should always, we should definitely think in those terms about the importance of our job and then, of, of course, the impact on our country and the future for our children. Super important. And maybe that's something else that kind of isn't talked about enough is like, what are the impacts of, you know, illegal immigration? What are the, what, what is the impact of the job we're doing? You know, it's very rarely discussed. And, and uh, I know that um, I believe wholeheartedly that it's just a super important uh, mission. And it's, of course, something I plan to, I dedicate my life to. And so you made the decision and, and you're, you're no longer, you don't uh, have a gym, but you still right. do some training. In yeah, your I coach yeah. some pros in my garage. I coach wrestling at a high school. I coach my children. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, we've both gotten older. And so your, uh, your seven day work weeks, 14 hour days are fewer, and, right. which is thankful because <laughs> you're burning the candle at both ends at that point. True. You're uh, you know a leader in the organization. And so that starts to enable you to, focus more on the family. Yeah, my priority is my family, especially my off time, because I, I, of course, have learned the hard way that if you don't have that, that balance of that, that personal, you know, time and your off time being, being more important than anything that I think that you actually don't, don't do as well, you know, on the clock, if you don't really learn to, to be a good ambassador off the clock to your family and your, your hobbies, or, you know, you just, Whatever, whatever it is that you like to consume your time with, but something that that's important to you, off duty, I think it just makes you a better agent on duty. That's and that's great advice. You, you talked about it earlier. You said that uh, if if things aren't well at home, it's tough to focus on the job at hand. True. That, I think that's a good way to put it. And mm-hmm. I think uh, you know it, the the older we get, and it's unfortunate because both you and I had this happen. You know, coming up when we're younger. We don't realize the value of that, and we don't prioritize family yeah. the way that we should. And that's always one of the biggest pieces of advice that somebody that's that's senior in the organization at least tries to impart right. on the trainees. And it sounds like that's kind of a similar thing that you're saying. Right. And a lot of this uh, has been learned the hard way, but I, I definitely try and I try and push that out to as many people as I could ever <laughs> reach and say, your off time is super important, and don't waste that time. Make sure you make the most of it and focus on you know, whatever your priorities are. And typically it's somebody's family because that's what, you know, when you, when you have a family that it's a no brainer, it becomes a no brainer. That's the most important thing. Good advice. So let's, let's talk to specifically the men and women that are interested in the border patrol or maybe trainees in the border patrol or even law enforcement in general. Mm -hmm. That's the, so words of wisdom. So we, we look at what it takes to, to get to the front door. What do they need to do to prepare themselves and what can they expect when they enter into the law enforcement profession or more specifically the border patrol family? Well, I mean, I always think in the most simplest terms and so this probably isn't gonna sound good, but I always kinda think like what I think what person would I want to be my partner and then how do I become that person? And so me, it's simple. I would want a person who's who can get some get to me quickly and then can back me up. So they have the right mindset that they're going to come prepared to do the job, which is, you know, we all come home safely. But and then you take all the steps to how do I become that person who can get to somebody quickly and, and have all the skill sets to be able to back you up, to be able to conduct the mission. Um, and, and that's that's kind of what I try and push, which always goes back to the type of I, I frame everything in, in training. I think about, you know, developing skills and, and the every in order to be to have that a bit capability, there's a ton of, of skills that had to be kind of trained into you, and and it's a, it's a process, but it's an important process, and I hope I hope more people kind of um, take it as serious as as I do. And again, I'm older now, so I don't take it as as serious as I once did. I will admit, but but I definitely am a huge advocate of of getting better every day. 
and now that you've done the job for for 20 years Mm -hmm. and uh and you know what the profession is all about was there anything that you expected when you were coming into law enforcement in the border patrol that was completely different Hmm. well i I came in blank slate so that's a that's a difficult um i do think that as as i've gotten further my career um just kind of seeing the politics and things like that those were things that kind of I didn't really anticipate. I didn't recognize how how much policy and politics can kind of influence our organization, and and maybe even detract from our, our overall mission sometimes. But again, that's not my cross to bear. I just don't try and focus on the mission at hand, and and that's what kind of why I love special operations. It's everything simplified. It's like these, this is the problem set, and now we we feel you know we come up with courses of action to go and address the problem. And I think that's a. A great way of looking at it, and it's it's great advice. I can tell you, most people I think whenever they they have this image of what law enforcement is, uh, they they think about what uh, Hollywood portrays on the movies and, and TV, and and you don't realize everybody thinks about this authority and this power that you have, but you're a public servant, and there's a lot more moments of frustration where you're you're serving after all. So there are moments and abilities where you exercise enforcement of the law. But that's not the majority of the time. The right. majority of the time, you're out there serving. A lot of people don't think about the uh, the Border Patrol, the number of rescues and the number of lives that are saved. Oh, yeah. That uh, you're putting your life on the line helping somebody out of a situation that they found themselves in they can't get out of. That doesn't get talked about very much. And that for me, that was uh, some of the surprising aspects because you you have this image of whatever your favorite uh, TV show is for you know for law enforcement or or movies, and, and you get there and you find out. If that's even real at all, it's it's just only a very small part of it. Very true, and you know, people can either choose to have a positive or negative opinion of us. To me, I, I love what we do, and I don't I don't let the, their opinions detract because I know about the things you're talking about. I know about how dedicated our our personnel are and rescues, and you know, they there isn't a single you know person. Who get, comes in contact with with my team or our teams on the board that isn't, you know, blown away at how professional they are and, and what an what an awesome, you know, just people in general. They're awesome people that for whatever reason gravitate towards our organization. Um, I, I love being a part of them. You know, I love being amongst them, if you will. Sorry, my. Well, so uh, you have a captive audience right now. You okay. Have, uh, you know, the, the trainees and people that are wanting to be your brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. If there's a piece of advice or words of wisdom that you could give to them right now that uh, that you think is going to make the difference and make sure they make it home at the end of the shift or make sure they have a successful career, you have them listening. Yeah, so I would say that, that we're a team, and uh, your only job on a team is to make your team better. So to make your team better, you need to improve yourself, you need to improve your partners, and you just think in simple terms is how do I improve myself? How do I you know, get more skills? How do I get more knowledge? How do I, how do I make my team better? Great advice from a great individual, great brother. Ed. Ladies and gentlemen, when you think about joining law enforcement, you think about joining the United States Border Patrol, the caliber of individual that's going to stand beside you, there's no greater example of it than somebody like Chance Ferrar. I would definitely say you are that example, but I appreciate that. <laughs> Chance, thanks for coming. Pleasure, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it again for another episode of What's Important Now. We'll talk again soon, and as always, stay safe out there. It's tough times. Honor first. <laughs>